Enterprise is a conversation with leaders, entrepreneurs, investors, and ordinary people about what makes work meaningful, what makes work work, and how to drive the best performance from the people that make up the enterprise. We talk about how to create business value through culture, leadership, digital innovation, and the employee experience. What are those unmistakably human touches that make an enterprise great, and what can we learn from them? My guest today is Dr. Anna Tavis, Associate Professor of Human Capital Management at New York University. Anna has led talent teams for companies like AIG, Motorola and Nokia, and in between her executive education, she works with companies to build strong management teams, culture, leadership and the employee experience. We met at a hacking HR meeting in New York and immediately connected when Anna began to advocate employee experience as the next horizon toward the future of work. In this episode, Anna shares her views about the future of work. The future of work is about personalizing this work experience, work approach. That is possible only through technology that we have because you can't scale at the level. Yes, maybe in a hundred persons organization, you can still manage by walking around. But the way you're going to scale that experience and personalize it to each individual, just like in the consumer environment, is going to happen through, you know, technology. About the most powerful value? It's, it's really interesting. In the corporate values at Nokia, there was a value where, that I had never seen anywhere else, and it was humility. It was very interesting in the business to having to to having a, a, a bit of humility um, is very powerful. About the habit that keeps Anna stable in an ever-changing world. So I think developing a meditation practice and be able to refresh your mind and get out of that busyness of the day is probably the healthiest habit that I have. I love this conversation. Anna, born in St. Petersburg and educated at Princeton, has worked in Europe and American companies. Listen closely and learn from her fascinating insights. Enjoy. Anna, thank you for joining me on this edition of The Human Enterprise. Delighted to be here. Anna, you have worked in HR or the HR side of business for, for most of your career. Um, as you think about the future of work and where we're at, what excites you about the future of work? Most importantly to me at this stage um, is the um, prospect of um, HR as a function to really step up to the leadership roles in the business. And it has to do with the changing nature of work where being human and understanding what it takes for human beings to be productive, to be engaged, and to actually deliver to the expectations and outcomes um, of the business, um, it takes um, all of humanity to be present. And, um, and I do believe that HR 
or whatever the name of that function is going to be, uh, should be well positioned to help deliver that to that expectation. I mean, I think when you look at successful businesses, HR is always an enlightened function with a core critical role around the board table and at every level of the organization. But I'd also observe that that's not the same. That's not the case in a lot of organizations. In, in, in just, let's say, young organizations that are growing fast, HR is almost inevitably kind of relegated to an administrative function to get the bodies in the door and, and to keep things running. Um, so it's kind of at a critical moment, aren't we, for HR? I mean, it's sort of either, I suppose, leadership is going to bring it into the central table, but you can't assume that that's going to happen. No, no, we can't. But um, I think what's important is what HR does or the purpose of HR in your organization is well recognized by leadership. And actually, the best of HR, to your point, does show up as leadership. Uh, leadership at the table, it's not just the advocacy, it's not the administrative side, but it really is the culture, it's about talent, it's about the high performance, uh, which is all human. Um, and the best of HR uh, can deliver that. And unfortunately, historically, and there are multiple reasons for that, HR has been kind of re relegated to a purely administrative, supportive uh, role that is not really um, the cliche, sitting at the table where decisions are being made. Yeah, because it's radically different, isn't it, with the implementation of data and all of the HR tech and the recruitment technology, the administration, the automation of benefits administration and pension. I mean, there's an awful lot of work that HR has got to control, almost none of which has got to do with high-performance coaching, culture, leadership development. I mean, I mean, it feels as if there are many different flavors yeah, of HR. But what I would argue is all of it has to do with high performance. If you don't get your benefits, if you don't get your the, what we call the hygiene factors of the business, if, you, if your paycheck doesn't arrive on time, um, that has a huge impact on the business. It's just um, things that are really critical, but on the Maslow hierarchy of needs, you know, the whole pyramid is, uh, will collapse if uh, those things are not attended to. Um, uh, but what happens is um, the foundations what, you know, on which HR has been built do not directly, you know, lead to that the highest performance and innovation that everyone is focused on. And so what we're seeing and why this is such a critical point in um, HR as a function in, the, in positioning HR in, in the business is that not only did we get the tools that are able to do all of the above much more efficiently, um, but also it will help us make the right decisions to begin with because in the 20th century version of the enterprise, you know, it was about um, industrial model, it was about predictability, and it was about building the systems that, uh, you know, with an expectation of continuity and predictability in the delivery. So it was a 
routine work that HR was doing primarily manually. Take compensation, a lot of it is spreadsheets, how do we know what we pay? You know, a lot of it is also that created a lot of unhappiness and headache um, in the organizations like performance reviews and uh, talent identification, et cetera, was not only manual, it took a long time for management to sit around the tables and, and, uh, and basically argue on the basis of subjective opinions about people. So there was a lot of subjectivity that created resentment. So all of it is um, going to be assisted and helped with now um, the data that is becoming more available delivered to us through um, technology that's more invisible. And, um, and so the skills that are required of HR are also changing. The demands are for more problem solving, for much more complex thinking, um, and um, you know, evidence-based decision making. And so if, if, the, if the 20th century version was in some ways about creating the factory, yeah. enabling businesses to scale at speed, and to have some order, we then notice a dip and a collapse, which is a lack of humanity and right. a set of systems that feel in some ways uh, wrong and sometimes unfair, or sometimes right. wrong and sometimes unfair. And we're moving into a phase now, which is, well, tell me, what, what, what is this phase? Yes, it's about no, bringing humanity right. back to yeah, the table? because about... it was about standardization and uh, the, the, the 20th century model was about standardization and, uh, and that was the mantra. Now it's about personalization. And so where those issues of fairness and, um, um, and accuracy are addressed are through personalizing the delivery of those services to individuals because with the help of technology, we can scale the high-touch approach that were previously only um, afforded to the very top management in their organization. So because of the technology now, we're able to play scenarios to factor in various aspects of their performance. To give you an example, we are now able to predict with AI and other factors you know, the, the shelf life of a skill. You know, if you have a particular skill, before everyone was paid because, well, the same, or because of tenure, for example, in, in, in the system. But now, um, even the freshly hired uh, employee, if the skills that they bring to their organization is, is highly valuable in the market, then the replacement costs that, again, technology is able to calculate for us, is going by far exceed, you know, anything that, you know, we are paying this particular individual. We are going to be uh, paying a lot more for that skill set, regardless of tenure, again, just because of the market value that this individual currently has. So I definitely want to come back to one point around the kind of the narrative layer of HR. Yeah. But I think, the, but, but I'm really interested in what you're saying there about in some ways the transparency of remuneration of skills and about the visibility of, of sort of the skill shelf life do you think that transparent pay like giving people the un, the ability to understand their worth based on the skills that they've got the experience they've had is that something that 
will drive better performance, that will be successful for business? You know, again, uh, the reason I love HR is because it's a very complex function, which a lot of outsiders don't understand. And so there are two things you said. One is transparency and the other pay. I think where we're getting to uh, in the 21st century is about reward. It's not about the pay. Pay is just a fraction of the reward that people get from work. And, and where we're getting in, into is to understand what the value systems and reward systems need to be to be customized to specific individuals. I totally agree with you. In the 20th century, it was all about pay. It was all about money. Uh, in the 21st century, we're going to look holistically at, for example, what is the purpose, what is the purpose um, that drives you in your work? And uh, what we are finding, that, for example, at different stages in human life, there's a different value system. You know, maybe for a fresh graduate who just got out of college and needs to pay those uh, dreadful loans, pay really is important. But if you get somebody later in their career, they would trade easily some of that pay for the time they can spend with their family or go on an unpaid sabbatical where they can pursue, um, you know, climb Everest or whatever they, that's important to, to you. And so where we're getting to um, is, uh, and we can return to the financial aspect of it, is in the employee experience space of the 21st century, we want to understand what's important to people as individuals. Because if we can deliver the rewards to them that are aligned with their needs, with their value systems, et cetera, we're going to get engagement way beyond anything that we could generate based on purely financial compensation. So that, I mean, I think that's hugely exciting for, for a lot of people, the thought that actually you can up some levers and down other levers, you know, to build the kind of reward package to suit your life and aspirations. I think in the last century, we, we know that the lack of transparency in pay yeah. right, led to gross inequity, you know, for, for gender and all sorts of social mobility issues. And so I think the transparency issue, even if we're moving to a much more progressive language like rewards, um, is, is, is still important, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, transparency... You know, there is a, such a concept as radical transparency, where everyone's compensation is listed on, on the board, everyone can see it, et cetera, et cetera. And there are different degrees of uh, transparency that you know, are sort of available. And I know where you're going with a look at um, gender equity and pay, et cetera, and all other aspects of it. Um, but again, I, the way we in HR see this, in addition to same pay for the same job, um, with the same factors contributing to it, um, there's a lot more complexity to, you know, both the reward and the, and the transparency of it. Um, there are cultural elements to that. There's so much that needs to be reviewed and, and um, accounted for. Uh, for example, 
um, in different cultures, you know, seniority, what seniority means here, what's in, in the U.S. market, you know, and what seniority means in Asia. Um, so um, in some cultures, transparency is a lot more acceptable than others. For example, I spent a, a chunk of my corporate career in Scandinavia, and um, those cultures are very egalitarian, very transparent, and there's a level of comfort associated with that. But if you go to other environments, you know, you might, even if you uh, target the same goals, equity, for example, it doesn't necessarily have to come with the transparency that we think about when we think about Scandinavia. The goal should be equity, and transparency should be dialed up and down depending on the cultural context and how it's been served and perceived. Because at the end of the day, if our measure for the organization will be optimal employee experience, that should be the litmus test for you know how you're going to work on the social side of what you're trying to accomplish kind of technically and you yeah. know and um, and that's where I would land with the conversation of transparency for example um, but with the absolute goal of achieving equity in as the as the outcome of of all the changes that are being introduced. So it's interesting sort of the role of culture and what you were talking about, about Scandinavian companies and about how transportable are some of those sort of cultural nuances. So you can have a very transparent culture. In the US, some companies have got super transparent, super progressive, and, and you know, for Nokia in, in, in um, Scandinavia, also very transparent. Are there... Um, uh, how successful were they at transporting that culture globally, or what did they have any issues in taking their Scandinavia culture or their unique business culture, and and what adaptations did they have to make in other markets? There's always a you know a core set of values that are very important for a company culture, and a lot of companies want to believe that you know that that's scalable if they do certain things and again this is one of the big challenges and HR needs to be an expert especially those um, HR professionals who are working in global organizations um, but um, the, it's 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 always a challenge to balance you know, the culture of the headquarters with the subcultures that evolve around the world and the, and, the, and the challenge about, you know, what's in the balance. Where do we, you know, do common things in, not, in, in our, let's say, HR practices and the way we run business. And uh, obviously nothing illegal needs to <laughs> needs to uh, happen I mean that's that's a that's a very clear line but outside of that realm you're really there's a, a broad you know variety of things you can do and so 
so what we used to say in the best global companies that I worked for was as common as possible and as different as necessary. So I can think of some businesses who, maybe through neglect, you know, allow their processes to define their culture. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's yes. Sort of, it's yeah. kind it of wrong. You wouldn't want thing. it to be that right, way around. Right, right. But you'd want it to be cultures defined by sort of human interactions yeah. and rituals. Yeah. And yet lacking that dedicated focus on creating those human interactions. I don't know, inevitably business processes almost define what the culture is all about. Are there businesses that you think get it right in terms of a sort of deeply human human-led culture versus a process-led culture? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an excellent point. Um, you know, I happened to start my career in two technology companies and um, I would say that um, you know, at Motorola, my very first uh, corporate job, um, some of that culture was the time of Six Sigma, if you remember. Yeah. And and I think in some parts of the organization, there was this tremendous drive to kind of make Six Sigma your overarching culture. You know, and that was right. the language, et cetera, of how the culture was run. So that's one example, and I think in, especially in industrial America, uh, a lot of times that that's what it was. You hear about these processes that were driven across, whether it belonged like Six Sigma in HR. You know, we spent thousands of hours trying to figure out how to justify the ROI on some, you know, very human thing that we were doing. And by contrast, um, Nokia, a Scandinavian culture, was also a technology company, but almost a 180-degree difference in how that organization approached their culture. Mm-hmm. And it was very humane. They were very efficient, I would say even more efficient in many ways, but without trading in their humanity, their collaborative culture, their respect for the individual, and their um, equitable treatment of people across. I mean, it was it was quite a culture shock for me to move from first Motorola to Nokia and experience this very, very different, very humane, and I was based in Helsinki, mm-hmm. um, a very humane culture. And then from that culture moved back to Wall Street. It was even a greater um, shock to me, and because the principles, the pre right pre financial crisis, Wall Street was absolutely brutal in terms of how organizations organizations function then. So that's kind of a fascinating thought. I mean, from that experience, what were what were some of the best things about the kind of the human-led culture? Or, or what were some of the things um, that, that you think were missing when you came back to the kind of the Wall Street type of yeah, environment? What I think was uh, the, the, the difference is that kind of the bond that united people at Nokia was the security, the uh, trust, 
um, a huge amount of psychological safety, that people felt very safe, uh, that they were not going to be let down or stabbed in the back. All of that was surfaced if there was any sort of behavior that indicated, you know, these types of actions. It was all surfaced. There were ways of dealing with it, and there was just a, a huge amount of collaboration among people because people felt safe um, at a personal level which was the exact opposite of what, let's say, the Wall Street environment was. It was really the jungle. It was, you know, whoever made most money had the, the, the biggest say. And, um, and because I happened to have worked for organizations that really collapsed, and, you know, I, coming from a culture perspective, HR was obviously in a very dark corner of those businesses, purely transactional. And um, and it was, um, you know, people who made the rainmakers were more untouchable. It didn't matter what they've done, what they did, and how bad it was. Um, they were untouchable because they were bringing in the cash for the business. And, uh, and even though the businesses were doing well, the, the tension, the um, anxiety, the insecurity of people in those types of environment was just contagious in a bad way. So I'm always interested as I read probably your and your colleagues kind of learned opinions or read, read books around successful management, successful leadership, successful cultures. Um, uh, because, you, you know, a lot of them are deeply researched, uh, evidence-based. They're trying to elicit a kind of clarity from what drives success in different businesses. You know, do you think those kind of semi, I don't know if toxic culture is, is right, but the kind of very money-driven cultures that lack any humanity, are they always doomed to crash at some stage? Um, eventually, they do because, and not for that, you know, the perpetrators are punished necessarily, but they're punished longer term because in those cultures you do not see succession. They are not generating a whole new, you know, wave of people coming through the ranks who have been nurtured in that environment, who grow, you know, the right kinds of cultures. It's not the culture, a nurturing culture, um, you know, and, um, and I think, of the, for example, you know, in a lot of these authoritarian types of environments, whether you're looking at it politically, socially, or you're looking at it from an organizational perspective, it's usually when that one leader is gone, there's no, there's either, a, you know, a sort of a palace coup type of um, situation, and the military steps in, and you can interpret it in the, in the, um, as a metaphor for some of the political fighting that may occur in these types of organizations. And it's, it's a tremendous leadership void because those cultures do not produce leadership in the kind of in the general sense where leaders could be at any level in their organization. They, they're extremely top-down, you know, uh, winner-takes-all uh, type of environments. 
and a lot of the more kind of leaders who we want to see, we hear much more um, the learning types of people who support and help others succeed, um, they tend to leave those organizations. They don't survive. So leaders of the future will need to A, know how to control the machines, but B, kind of explore, I mean, what, what are the key skills that you're helping develop sort of in, in HR yeah. and leaders of the future? The, I think the key skill sets will be to make informed decisions um, right. for the leaders. Uh, you know, decisions that override the ego, decisions that um, are critical of subjectivity and understand how to balance multiple points of view. Uh, because information will be delivered. But as we know from even just looking around ourselves now, that you can have as much science and data as you want, but if the individual, the leader in front of you, uh, resents it, doesn't think it fits their purpose, there's no machine or no data that are going to change this particular decision maker's mind. And that's where the dangers begin to occur. So it's not the availability of data. It's not the uh, efficiency of the machines. It's really the um, decision-making process that is um, you know, critical, that is um, inclusive, and the decision process that is um, humane. And when we first met, you were talking a lot about the employee experience. And I, I, I think you were sort of talking about also using data to yeah, inform totally. the employee experience and to understand what's going on. When you talk to business leaders, HR leaders of the future, how, how do you sort of counsel them to think about the employee experience? The future of work is about personalizing this work experience, work approach. That is possible only through technology that we have because you can't scale at the level. Yes, maybe in a hundred persons organization you can still manage by walking around, but the way you're going to scale that experience and personalize it to each individual, just like in the consumer environment, is going to happen through you know, technology. Um, so what I tell the leaders is the future work is very individual, very personalized, that we will have to be fighting for each and single one of those talents that we have in the, in the organization delivering, delivering um, our business to our business goals. And so they will need to be um, informed about what's going on, they will need to be able to measure not just the business outcomes, but the employee sentiment. They will need to have the skills to uh, prevent um, the um, anxiety, unrest, uh, lack of trust, and all of those things that might happen and derail you know, the business. And they will have to uh, be able to you know, be visible almost in the 27 24-7 basis to be good communicators to 
to be seen as accessible and trustworthy. Very important. And uh, what's on their bedtime reading list for your students? Yeah, as I said, <laughs> as I said, you know, it's really interesting. At the top of my list will probably be um, Thinking Fast and Slow, the kind of behavioral economics book. Um, and, um, and there's so much good uh, reading out there. I mean, I've been consumed by um, the books by behavioral economists most recently as well as social scientists. Uh, for example, the book um, by Princeton researcher, How Behavior Scales, mm. uh, which mostly looks at medical data and looking at, because it's so visible um, to us, at how, for example, diseases travel. Right. And, uh, and understanding human behavior from you know, day-to-day interactions, not necessarily at work. And then you take those insights and you see how they apply in the day-to-day work environment, and they actually do because we bring a whole of ourselves to work, right? Mm. And unlike what we thought in the 20th century, that we can just divide or put the wall between the work and, and life. Like a work-life balance doesn't exist. Um, here we will have to think about... Um, what we choose and what individuals, how individuals function, basically, which is a much more complex task for HR to do, to carry out, than just to standardize and process and roll it out to all of the global employees in, in the world and basically fail with each and every one of them. <laughs> and I have to got three very quick questions yeah short answers what is your most successful habit habit my um you know i personally i uh, i am a yoga practitioner and i practice two hours every day Uh, so every day i get up on my mat and it's kind of a moving meditation it's not a class i don't take classes it's a self-practice and so moving through, so I think developing a meditation practice and be able to uh, refresh your mind and get out of that busyness of the day is probably the healthiest habit that I have. What's the secret ingredient to your happiness? To my happiness? Oh, I enjoy little things. I really, really appreciate most um, most basic things in life, and I don't need much. I, you know, I really, for, you know, I don't need, I don't have material aspirations. I, I need very little. I think that's 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 helping me. What's your advice to the next generation? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think everyone is thinking about the next generation. I, th- I, I think it's about um, finding your purpose. And I know it's kind of a cliche, but purpose um, in, in, in life, that's kind of the northern star. And whatever job you're going to take, whatever you know, career you're going to have, and um, all of those people you're going to meet, um, you're kind of moving toward that goal. I think oftentimes just looking back, I realized that there was this compass in me built in, even though I didn't, I didn't maybe have this awareness early on. 
um, but it's the drive um, and discovering that engine within yourself I think is very important and the saddest thing I see you know, with some of my students and um, you know people I know is that lack of lack of any sort of commitment or orientation toward any goal and people are lost they don't know what to do with themselves so I would say spend time finding out what it is and then you'll be all set for the rest of your life because things will start aligning um, to your purpose. And finally, um, what are those unmistakably human touches that make an enterprise great? It's, it's really interesting. In the corporate values at Nokia, there was a value where, where that I have never seen anywhere else, and it was humility. It was very interesting in the business to having to to having a a, a bit of humility um, is very powerful, and it's kind of a, a huge deficit of hum humility right now with with all of us, I guess, because mm. there's so much uh, personalization and you know, the consumer environment and all of that noise. Um, but being humble and kind of empathetic and understanding other people's pain, um, insecurities, etc., I think is, uh, is a tremendously important quality. And it's been great to catch up with you. Thank you very much for joining me on this edition of The Human Enterprise. Thank you so much. Happy to be here.